Welcome to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast with Darren Mitchell. If you're a sales letter looking to take your leadership to a whole new level, then this is the podcast for you. We'll be exploring tips, techniques, and strategies to help you take your leadership to the exceptional level and allow you to enjoy more money, more meaning, and better sales results. Alrighty, welcome back to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast and welcome Mr. Chris Beal from all the way from Arizona today. How are you, my friend? I am doing fabulously well. I'm here with you, Darren. Is it possible to do better? No, it isn't. Uh, and you've got, if, for those of you who are going to be watching the video, you've got a beautiful, um, oh, it's, a, it's a, a small vessel in your, uh, <laughs> just behind you. And there was a story about that. That's, that originally sailed from, from Sydney, I believe. Yeah, I, I actually I almost literally ran into this boat uh, when I was out for a barefoot run in Sydney one day on the last day of a month in Australia. And there it is. And it's got this giant panda coming down off the top of it, like King Kong, like, you know, 40, 50 foot tall panda. And I'm going, oh, what the heck is this? And I, I looked at it. I took a picture of it. And then, you know, I didn't want my heart rate to get down too low. So I took off. But I noted the name Ovation of the Seas. So then it went off smack into COVID. I think that was its its maiden COVID voyage, I suppose. It went off and everybody got COVID and then they left some people yeah. on an island. I don't know what happened. And then, you know, the cruise industry, boom, dead. This is in January of 2020, late January of 2020. So here we are in Seattle and my fiance Helen and I looking across at the city on a beautiful June day. And what should steam into Elliott Bay and park directly in front of us, but my faithful dog, the ovation of the seas, <laughs> come 11,000 miles just, just to, to see you and pose, and pose for a picture. <laughs> so I took a picture and I like it so much that uh, I would never go on such a ship, but I do like the picture. They're just massive, aren't they? I, I remember being in New Zealand and seeing one dock in Auckland and it was just the biggest thing I've ever seen. Just and they're like they're obviously floating cities in some respects. Just yeah. phenomenal, phenomenal. Yeah. Hey, uh, we were talking just just before about um, I was asking you how to pronounce your surname, and I, I thought I thought it was Bill, and and it is. But you were starting to tell me an interesting story about the um, I guess the the genesis of the name. Well, the, the Beals apparently were originally Bells. Now, of course, I'm only on my dad's side, Beal, right? But it is. It's Beal, it's Burns, it's Nickel, and it's Laid. All four sides of my family are Scots who came to the U.S., or to America before it was the U.S. So, you know, we had some kind of illustrious ones. The um, Augustus White Nickel used to own huge swaths of both sides of the Hudson River and founded the Presbyterian Church in America. Okay, wow. that's pretty cool, right? But the Beals, who were originally Bells, who were Normans, came over in 1066 and weren't nice. Um, <laughs> England, you know, they were decidedly not nice. I guess they or we or whatever. Apparently, this offshoot of this clan, and by the way, Bell meant kind of pretty boy. Um, they they took their pretty boyness up into the border country between what is now, you know, what is England and Scotland. Now, by the way, most people don't know the border country is there because Scotland used to be part of South America. And when it got ripped off from the coast of South America and taken on a long ride <laughs> for many, many millions of years and crashed in England, the squish made all these hills. And that's why the border country is a great place to hang out and steal sheep from both <laughs> sides. <laughs> so my, I was at this 
You this, come from uh, a long line of sheep stealers. Sheep stealers, yeah. And so and we were, we were my family, my my two boys and and uh, my late wife and I were in Scotland at, at this small sort of castle, staying there as a, you know because that's what they do now. The castles become B and Bs, and. We, we were, uh, I think, playing some chess and drinking some whiskey. My son Galen was 18 at the time. And the proprietor asked a question on my son because my son had said, oh, I think we saw a family name. It might not have been the Bells or Reels. It might have been something else. But he said, I saw, thought we saw it. And he says, well, how's, how's your family's name spelled, son? And he says, well, you know, and he spells it B-E-A-L-L. And the guy thinks for a moment. He says, no, Lottie. That one you saw, those aren't your people. Your people are sheep stealers from the border. (laughs) And so Galen and I were very proud. We raised a glass to it. And frankly, I think there's a lesson in there, which is the entrepreneurial instinct has been alive in my family for a long time. And is there any more pure expression of entrepreneurship than to hang out in the hills and steal sheep from both sides? Absolutely. And make deals with both sides, no doubt. Exactly. exactly. And, the, and the bills were known for deals. They were known for deals. Love it. Love it. So that, that's an interesting background because I know having spoken to you a little bit before, your background is, is entrepreneurship and you've been in the startup game for many years. So for the listeners who are listening in, just give us a little bit of the, um, the Chris Bill backstory without the sheep component (laughs) well actually i did (laughs) used to raise sheep also oh you did as well yes indeed but i did it for i did it for money it was a job in fact it was my first job my first real job was taking care of some sheep some cattle some horses and a couple of goats and uh, some chickens some ducks i think that might have been the dot the the lot uh as a display for a model home out in the desert in, in scottsdale north scottsdale way out in the north and so uh, I was raised out in the desert, not very many people. Uh, we didn't get around on bicycles as kids. We got around on horses, which yeah. was considered, you know, the, that's four wheel drive right there. Four hoof drive. You can't beat Absolutely. it because up and down places you can't get in, a, in another vehicle. And, you know, I think it shaped me in a funny way. One is the entrepreneurship. There was really no jobs to be had, but that you could start a company anytime you wanted. And so I tended to do that. You know, if I wanted to get something, make money or whatever. I'd just start a company at the age of 11 or whatever. Wow, call my wow. friend Danny in and we'd go figure out what we we're going to do and charge people money for it. You know, it's like, that was it. So uh, there is something very entrepreneurial about country living of that kind, because you don't have a lot of resources around. There's not a lot of people to tell you what to do. Yeah, and yeah. so you kind of figure out what to do. Plus I was raised in a house full of books. My dad, unbeknownst to any of us, at the age of 26, had written a manifesto okay. that he kept to himself. And I found, we all found the day after he passed away. And it basically said, uh, I'm going to work to support my family, but my real focus of life to the degree I can carve it out, other than you know, being with my family, my kids and all, is going to be to read the best that was ever thought and written and, and annotate it and understand it. And he did that from the age of 26 until he was, you know, in his 80s. Yeah. And so these books, the house was full of the curated best books that had the best thinking in the world. Because books are cool and that to get a book out is not easy. And I've been trying to write a book for years and years and years, and it just turned into a damn podcast. 
podcasting is like you know, I, got I, hear, I, hear. <laughs> I got 122 episodes of a podcast and no book right so but but that represents a bar that an idea or thinking or words phrases or whatever have got to get over in order to get imprint in a book and i respect books hugely for that reason well i had a house full of them and then I had a public library I could go to. So I exhausted the school library by seventh grade. They wouldn't let me in anymore. And then I started going to the public library more, which was about, that was a ways away. But by then we had roads and stuff. So it wasn't so bad. And then I discovered the Arizona State University Library, five floors of books and periodicals. And, and uh, my dad was getting his master's there. So I was free to roam the stacks and do what I wanted. Now, the university students looked at me a little funny. What's this, you know, 13-year-old kid or 12-year-old kid doing in here? And I had the card catalog mapped out. I, I knew my purpose every time I, I could go there. So I read and read and read and lived outdoors. And I think that combination kind of made me who I am. Yeah. And so when you look at that, it combined with the background of, I guess, growing up in a remote area, and almost to, to some degree having to be self-sufficient, do you think that combined with your thirst for knowledge led you to the path of entrepreneurship rather than the many other, the path that many others would take in terms of going to university, getting a job and spending 40 years in a job? Yeah, yeah, and, and it, I, did, I think it did. And then my hobby did also, or my passion for mountaineering and rock climbing. Yeah. So those are intensely entrepreneurial games and nobody tells you to do it nobody organizes it there's no coach there's there's no you know parents to rescue you so at the age of 16 my climbing partner and I were doing six-week expeditions in the big mountains where there were no roads and no people and back then no cell phones to climb big walls that hadn't been climbed before so putting up first ascents on on big walls in the big mountains is uh, very entrepreneurial it'll take Oh, I remember that trip took, you know, a year plus of planning and training yeah. down to the last peanut. Now, yeah. Every calorie you're going to eat on every day for six weeks, thinking through everything you might need, basically launching what's like a company, but without financial objectives or, or product objectives, but with summit objectives. Very, very similar. Um, and I think I just had the thirst that I, I acquired a taste for self-sufficiency and self-direction. Yeah. And yeah. so when I when I got out of university, which took me seven years, I'm a very slow learner. No, um, there's just so many books, Chris. That's yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I kind of skipped out at one point and went to Las Vegas and made my living as a, as a gambler, as a card counter. And, I, and, and that's where I learned to raise money. I raised money from other people, venture capital, and went to Vegas and, and you know, scratched cards on a table to make mathematics turn into money. And so that was also very, very educational. But it was a loner business. I was all alone in, in the casinos. Actually, my wife, my wife played with me for a while and I had a friend come, but it was pretty much a loner business. And that was very appealing to me. So, you know, when I finally got out of university, I was going to become a physics teacher at my old high school. And my high school physics teacher took me aside. And we had a conspiracy that she was going to quit suddenly, retire and leave them in the lurch. And they were going to be stuck with me. 
And I had student taught under her. So I'd spent a year back okay. at that school with you know, my old buds, my old teachers. I, I really was close to my teachers in high school. And um, she took me aside and said, I don't want you to do it. She said, I've been, I'm an angel investor. I had no idea what that meant. I said, does that mean that like angels, what do you buy equity in angels or something? <laughs> does that work? It just seems like it would work really well. But I, I don't know, kind of, how do you do the due diligence on angels? I don't quite get it. No, she said, no, I invest in, uh, in all sorts of things. And my previous students, I keep track of, and I rank them for entrepreneurial capability. And she had this multi-complicated scoring thing. And she said, you're kind of at the top of the list. So, you know, for 40 years of, of teaching. Wow. And she wow. said, I want you to go start companies. So do you, was that the was that the catalyst that was or the or the um, or the encouragement to push you in that direction or do you think yeah. you were already destined to do that anyway based on your your background? I probably was destined to do it, but I think being kicked out of the nest was pretty good because I was very attracted to teaching. Yeah, I, I'm a very lazy person by nature, and so I thought this is great. I can teach all day, which is easy for me. I can coach one of the teams like the tennis team or the golf team, some, you know, wimpy sport like that, where I wouldn't have to get too banged up. I can go rock climbing when I want. Right. Yeah. And uh, I had the summers off. Right. So I can write books and stuff, which I wanted to do. Now you can tell yeah. I clearly didn't want to do it much because I've written no books. <laughs> right. So actually I'm a manifest failure as the teacher who had written books uh, I think I would have done it eventually just because I make such a poor employee, but I have a pretty big motor. Yeah, and yeah. that combination, I think, ends up driving some of us into entrepreneurship. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that, that for me suggests that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that teacher, the angel investor, would have been probably one of your first earliest mentors. Would that be a fair mm. statement? That very, very sometimes true. we need... We need the the person who perhaps sees things in us that perhaps we either don't want to see in us or we don't believe we have the capability that you just need that person to give us a little bit of a, a nudge in the right direction to say, wow, maybe I do have this capability. So what was the what was the relationship with that person? Did she actually end up um, providing some funding for you to start or was she just a mentor that that pushed you in the right direction that gave you the, I guess, the catalyst for the, for the momentum to start? Yeah, she gave me a program, actually, which was quite interesting. Okay. She, she told me how to do it. She said, what yeah. you do is go get involved as an employee, start wherever in some industry that has a future that you have talent at. And she said, what, what you will do is in a short period of time, you will get frustrated, fed up with the stupid way they do things. <laughs> and she said, because your nature is to be frustrated and fed up with the stupid way that everybody does things, including yourself. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty true. <laughs> and, uh, and she said, just do that and go get a job. And then uh, it'll happen naturally. You will, you will uh, do it for maybe a year or two or three or four. And then at some point, you're going to just go start something. And you'll have the background in that industry. You'll know people. You won't need capital probably because you'll know people. And... Um, she said, that's it. After that, it's like you find a problem, you go solve a problem. That's a company. Get over it. Don't think it. Don't overthink it. She don't said, overthink just, it. <laughs> just go do it. Wow. Isn't that amazing advice? And how old were you at the time? I was pretty old. I was, I think, 26. 
Because okay. it took me so long to get through school. I mean, really, I had worked at, you know, the Shamrock Foods warehouse night, night loading trucks for a year. Cool. And uh, I redesigned the warehouse, by the way, saved them a few hundred thousand dollars of overhead or over time, not overhead, over time. Um, you know, I, I did a lot of things. Um, so some people laugh at me. They just, a, a guy once in, in Iowa who was thinking of joining one of the companies that I had put together, he said, would you just sit down over drinks for a while, however long it takes, and tell me about every job you've ever had? Yeah. So four and a half hours later, I was still telling him about jobs. That I did. <laughs> well, that I've is, done a that... lot of things. I, I think you learn so much in different kinds of jobs. And I think the jobs themselves have served as my mentors. I've had yeah. great mentors as people, but I think actually, as I think back, it's the jobs themselves. It's how to get them. Mm -hmm. uh, I learned when I went to get a job at NCR that caring at all what their requirements are is a bad idea. Overqualifying, I learned that lesson there. So I got that job just by going into the boss after this big test that we'd all, uh, there were 30 something uh, victims who were, you know, <laughs> contending. Slash yeah, contend applicants. <laughs> applicants contending for one job. And I, I remember going into the boss's office and, and saying, John, um, I realize you're not going to hire me. That's how I opened the interview. And he said, well, how do you know that? And I said, well, I wasn't hundred percent sure, but now that you've asked how I knew it, I'm hundred <laughs> percent. So uh, it's a, it's a huge mistake. Yeah. And I strongly advise you not to make the mistake. It's not going to be career limiting, but I think you'll look back and, and wish you had actually um, given yourself a chance. Which is pretty cool. Don't you mean giving you a chance? I said, well, <laughs> no, that's not what I meant. I'm, I meant giving yourself a chance because you've taken on a really, really hard assignment here. It's a new product. It's a 10 state region in the West that I know intimately and you don't know at all. Mm. I, I know what it's like in those small towns in Wyoming. I know what it's like out on the Navajo reservation. These are going to be the people we're going to have to support. And frankly, you're going to need somebody who's a fast learning generalist who is really, really good at talking to people with all sorts of diverse backgrounds and helping them see the wisdom of moving to this new line of computers. And I am that person and nobody else in that room was. And I'll make it easy for you. I'll work for free for six months. There you go. And he said, I can't do that. I said, well, there's a phone. Go call HR and find out how little you can pay me. And that's how I got that job. Wow. And that was my launch into the software industry, computer industry, and then software industry. And, you know, what I learned was if you're capable and you're willing to do, I, I think what it takes doesn't really capture it, but kind of, kind of captures it. Yeah. You're completely free to do anything you want in the work world. Completely free. So you may as well do what you want to do. Yeah. And with that, because that, I said before that that's the pretty, pretty ballsy move because he could have just as easily, you know, thrown you out of the office and say, hey, that we've got a process like a lot of corporates would do. But there must have been something within you that piqued an interest for him. Yeah. Do you think that, I guess, the not wanting to label it, but the secret of your success as an entrepreneur and starting up many organizations and building what you've got now, do you think your focus on being different and going against, I guess, the, the grain of what everybody expects you to do is a, is a core reason as to why you've been successful? Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know if it's a focus on being different. I'm just, we're all different. We're just stuck yeah. being different. I'm just reasonably comfortable being different. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't have a lot of extra energy for for playing dress up. Yeah. I just don't. I never have. And, you know, everybody's like they are. One of the ways you could be like you are is to be stuck being like you are. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like some It'll of us okay don't have much of that skill. It's funny, you know, because I, I, I work with th- so many sales leaders and sales teams and, and just in, in some cases, general teams and just watching them in that environment, they almost become people who they're not at their core in order to fit in. They start drinking the company Kool-Aid, start talking the company language and they almost become clones. And when I find somebody who goes against the grain, who says, hey, I'm me and I'm okay to be me. And whether you like me or not, I'm not really interested in, but I'm going to deliver a result because I believe in what I'm doing. There's something about those people that separates them from everybody else. And I think they're an attractive force. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's true. I've never really thought about it. You know, if one were to embrace it as a strategy, it would be great. I don't think it's an embraceable strategy, actually. (laughs) I think it's kind of like, you know, it's sort of like if you're six, six, seven, maybe you should think about playing a little basketball to see if you like it. It's sort of like that. Yeah. So yeah. it's a it's a funny thing that the world the world is comfortable with conformists, but the world follows people who are different, who are themselves, and it's because I think it's a comfortable thing to do mm-hmm. as a as a somebody who's looking for somebody to follow. Following somebody like yourself is sort of pointless, mm. but following somebody or even joining a company where you can adapt yourself to that. And that's how you're a, you know, safe follower when you're seeking safety, yeah. which is yeah. what most people are seeking. And it's reasonable to seek safety, by the way, the world is such a dangerous place. Totally. The fact is rationally, you can't actually achieve safety. So you may as well give up on the project, yeah. but yeah. people don't, right? They think I want this. I want this control. They're piling up money is an example. Piling up a bunch of money makes you feel safe. Mm. Does it work? There's no evidence whatsoever that piling up money actually confers safety. Mm. It just doesn't. It's it's like if you wake up every day willing to help other people and you're sincere at doing that and you bring to the party whatever you bring to the party, there's safety in that. There's huge safety in that, but it doesn't sound safe. It doesn't sound safe at all, right? But it's actually like the ultimate bank account. Are you willing, capable to wake up every day to have as your primary focus helping someone else because you have enough? It, it's, a, it's like having an infinite amount of money. Yeah. Everybody's always going to have some reason that they want to either avail themselves of your help or help you or give, you know, give a good word to someone. So it's kind of, I think it's funny. I think people get this not only backward, but inside out. My mom told me something when I was very young. I was probably five or six Mm -hmm. and I was being a little shit and I was being a little shit. Like I wanted what I wanted, right? Like little kids do, but no excuses as far as I'm concerned. And my mom, who was not the, the softest person in the world, by the way, just to point out, she used to look out into the desert when I was 10, 11, 12. And she said, plenty of room out in that desert to bury a child. You know, I like the fact that you put it in terms of room, like that might be the constraining resource. Oh, oh, I can't kill you because I don't have enough room to bury you. You're good. 
right? But my mom, plenty of room out there in the desert. So she she just looked at me. She didn't didn't do any parental stuff. It was very unusual. She just looked at me and she said, and this is in 19, I suppose 59 or 60. Right? I was born in 54. So she said, Chris, there are three billion other people in the world. There's only one of you. Do the math. And I believe that that's my philosophy of life. There are 7 billion people in the world. Any one, two, three, five hundred thousand, whatever I might be able to be helpful to today. There's only one of me. And what do I need? I need air to breathe. I need food to eat. I need not to be so cold that I, you know, shiver myself to death. I need companionship, friends. Yep. I need intellectual stimulation. Thank God the world's full of books. I'll never get through all of them. And I need a good laugh every once in a while, which is pretty often. That's like, what is the additional thing you go? Oh, yes. And, and if I had that, a chocolate cake or a billion dollars, it's like, uh, you know, which one lasts longer? I don't know. So I actually think the ultimate bank account is to have the good fortune just the maybe dumb luck, because you don't know if you came up with it, just to go, you know what? There's a lot of opportunity to help people. And that's what makes the world go around. That's what makes a society. So maybe I'll look for that today. Hmm. It's a great philosophy and, and one that, I mean, if, I, if we talk about leadership, um, I'm a big, big fan of John Maxwell and his, his approach to servant leadership and something that I've adopted in my career as well. And it's the same thing looking for how you can help one person or a couple of people to get get better not looking for what you can get out of that transaction and i want to then take that into the sales realm as well because i know there's a lot of sales teams around the world who and hey let's we talked about oracle before um had lots of experience with oracle and and i'm not disputing their methodology but it's interesting organizations like that have multiple touch points into other organizations and they think you know what as many people as we possibly can have talking to one organization, it means that we've got, we've got great coverage, but it's not necessarily creating a lot of value. It's more a case of what we can get out of that transaction. So I'd love, I'd love for you to sort of contemplate and think about on your entrepreneurial journey, how much of that philosophy that you've developed and maybe your mum helped you through, um, <laughs> through those comments you made, <laughs> how much has that philosophy been shaped and helped you in your entrepreneurial journey in terms of what you do today around servitude and helping? I think it's everything. I, I, I actually can't imagine having the, the, like the fuel to keep trying to think, because this stuff is hard. Anybody who thinks it's easy is, is not paying attention. It's hard. It's not hard like jobs that I used to have, like, you know, hey, we're going to shave all the weeds off this big ditch here in the desert with shovels and it's 115 degrees out. It's not hard like that. That's actual work. And people who do that kind of work can come home afterwards and can find the energy to do stuff with their, with their spouse, their, their partner, their kids, their neighbors. I have, I have the ultimate respect for those people because that's actual hard. And the older you get, the harder it gets. There's no such thing as being you know, 55 years old with a shovel in your hand and being able to say that's easy, right? And I, I have the great good fortune of not doing that anymore, but I've, I have done that. I've done those jobs and I've, and I've learned a lot from those jobs. Now I do stuff that 
When I say it's hard, what's hard about it is when you start a company or you go to solve a big problem and you need to each day figure out what to do and to do it, to bring the energy to it, to bring the optimism to it, to bring the realism at the same time, because optimism and realism, oddly enough, go together if you work hard enough, because then your realism turns out to be correct. <laughs> and your optimism comes along with it because you do something good. <laughs> That's it. Right? You can actually drag the optimism with the realism and throw the optimism over the over the fence, so to speak, and then climb up the rope on the other side. And that's that's the two things that you use in order to move forward. Well, how do you find each day that kind of that drive inside you to do this this small thing that needs to be done and do it in good spirit and do it in a way that people want to join you and enjoy being with you doing it? Because that's how you pay them. You pay people mostly through the enjoyment of being with you. Actually, I, I had a comment today by by a guy who's become a very good friend, Tom Jung, who I, by the way, I would never do this to him, but he's my data concierge. And he said, I would do this job for free. Yeah. Just, yeah. just to work with you. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. that's, that's the big currency is you draw people toward you as a proxy for the mission. You can't draw people toward the mission. Otherwise they would have done the company. Yeah. I mean, it's a ridiculous concept, right? Here's the mission. that's so attractive. You hate me, but you love the mission. Join up. That's like <laughs> utter freaking nonsense. People reason about people first cor correctly. So how do you be that person? You need a pole star. You need something that's always there. And the simplest something that never leaves is this is an opportunity to help somebody. Maybe somebody I've met. Now, the thing about companies that's funny is it's an act of faith. You're saying, I think I can help people I haven't met. I think my hypothesis about their needs that I can fulfill, gather a team, build something, that hypothesis is sufficiently worthy to do something that is essentially a gamble in hopes of being able to help them. That's the tough part, I think. And I think you need something that kind of drives you in that direction. So it's like, geez, do I have to do this idiot thing? It's like, apparently, yes. <laughs> Apparently, yes. And a lot of that is a leap of faith when you think about uh, joining an organization. And I, I spoke to a number of people the last couple of days in workshops I've been running, and a number of them were talking about how they left organizations who are, for all intents and purposes, great companies, but they're leaving because their bosses were complete dicks. And it was a great example of, of the human connection and how important it is. So Joining an organization, and I assume this happens in startups because startups, the future is unknown. We're taking a massive leap of faith, but it's the it's the faith they have in the person, such as the faith that people have in you in terms of where you're taking what your intention is that drags them along and says, you know what, I'm going to hang on to Chris's coattails because I believe in him. Why? Because he believes in me and he makes me feel better about myself for having been around him. And I, I see that as like the ultimate form of service to a human being because it's irrespective of the company that you represent, people will follow you. And it's a great, it's a great I guess, lesson for all leaders to be really clear on why they are a leader, what their intention is, what their purpose is, because it's not necessarily all about, okay, we want to make money and we want to be profitable, that sort of stuff. But what legacy are you leaving, right? If you reflect back on that, that physics teacher 
I'm sure that even though she may not have invested in you, she's still invested in you and you recall oh. her as being a catalyst for the projection that you're now on. She invested in me big time, by the way. I student taught under her. And the first thing she did, I don't know, you know, most of the audience probably doesn't know how student teaching works. If you're getting a degree in education, you're going to be a secondary school teacher. You spend a year teaching. And that's, uh, that's a course you're taking. Right? Yeah. And it's, it's normally kind of light. It's like you'll go and student teaching means you watch and then maybe you do some teaching. And my first day with her, talk about faith, my very first day, and she is huge and had, she's no longer with us, immense pride in her ability to take a bunch of 12th graders and turn them into physicists. And she meant it, right? So first day I walk in, student teaching, she opens the lesson book at the teacher's you know, stand up there. Her desk was up a little bit. And she says to the class, uh, everybody, I'd like to introduce you to Chris Beale. He'll be teaching this class this year. <laughs> and you're sitting there thinking. I'm going, cool. Where do I start? Well, I mean, I know more physics than these kids do. And to the degree I don't, we'll explore it together because that's what science is about. And, um, but she had that faith and put her reputation on the line as a teacher. Yep. And she didn't do it through a graded process. She didn't do it gently. She didn't do it in a hedged way. She just did it. Yep. And that to me is, is the ultimate. Like when we bring in a, a SDR into an organization, sales development rep, what do we do now? We'll take them through months of familiarization and training and onboarding and this and that. The best thing you can do, if anybody is listening to this and you're in sales and you're thinking about bringing people in, do this. You will solve all of your management problems from now until the end of time. Do this. Take a 24-year-old SDR into your shop. Give them a script. Explain to them the psychology of it, why it really works, what the, what the human secret is, the human element behind it, and how to use their voice. Have them practice it just by getting their mouth around it 30 mm -hmm. times. Boom, boom, boom. I believe we've discovered a breakthrough that completely eliminates the waste and the frustration that keeps your best sales reps from being effective on the phone or even using the phone at all. And the reason I reached out to you is to get 15 minutes on your calendar, share this breakthrough with you. Do you happen to have your calendar available? Teach them that script, whatever it is that's yours. If you want it, by the way, if you want one of these, come to me. I spit them out all the time. They're pretty straightforward. Fortunately, to take a human being from fear to trust to curiosity to commitment to action to take a meeting isn't actually that hard, yeah. but it's magic. Yeah. And throwing that person in without anything, you know, like surf without a surfboard, not nice. Give them the surfboard, though, and then let them stand up in a few waves mm. on the first day. And you will transform your entire organization. I swear this, if I were to just to go around and say, hey, I got a cool consulting practice. Here's what it is. We're going to take your, your brand new SDRs and we're going to have them talk to customers in the first day. Because not that they're going to get so much better, but they're going to know you trust them. They're going to know you have faith in their ability to do this. They're going to know that their job is to talk to strangers mm -hmm. and get them to accept the wisdom of accepting a meeting, of signing up for a meeting. 
Yeah. They're going to learn more in that first day than six months of traditional onboarding. And the main thing they're going to learn is you have faith in them. And that's transformative. So I, th- I know the answer to this question, but why do you think so many organizations out there are so fixated on having to put them through a six-week or a six-month onboarding program before they let them loose on the customers? It just doesn't well, make sense. It doesn't make sense. It, 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 the reason is there's a conceptual reason. There's a belief that the reason that they're reaching out to folks is to have them buy their product, which is a self-centered reason. It's narcissistic. Yeah. I want to talk with you so that you'll buy something from me is fundamentally a corrupt attitude. Yeah. I, was, yeah. uh, I was once in Singapore and attending a meeting by the top people at a company that I'm not going to mention, but this was the top people for all of Asia. And the boss opened the meeting with these top salespeople. It's a once a month meeting. He's a very nice guy, by the way. I like him a lot. We went over to Santosa and we played golf. I miraculously somehow beat him, which is still to this day, I can't believe, because he was a former pro golfer on the New Zealand, oh, wow. Australia, New Zealand tour. <laughs> Luck plays a great part in many things in life. But he, he looked around the room to begin the meeting. And then he turned to the first person and said, so... How much money have you taken from our customers this week or this month? How much money have you taken from them? That was the phrase. No, it was stark. It was kind of lovely in, a, in the way that, you know, The Silence of the Lambs is kind of a lovely movie, even though you don't like the content too much. I don't like it at all. It's stark, naked, like, I want to eat you kind of quality to it. But I think folks think that it's okay to start in sales with the notion that the purpose of our activity is to take somebody's money. If you think of it another way, which is the purpose of our activity is to help those that we as a specialist can help because they're generalists. So when they have a problem that's in our area of specialization, we can bring something to them. The exchange of money simply is necessary to make the world go around. That doesn't work any other way. That's like the invention of money lets us do this. Yes, so we yes. should be like worshiping money. Worship money, it lets us help others that we don't know yet. Great. But if you think the purpose is to get somebody to buy your product, well, it's so natural. Hey, we got to train our sales development people on our product. Well, that's utter nonsense. Your product. <laughs> If you're in sales development, is the meeting. The meeting with an expert. What are, what's somebody going to learn in that meeting? Well, probably three things. One of them is going to be something economical. It's going to have to do with time risk or money. One of them is going to be something emotional. It probably has to do with reducing frustration since we're all frustrated as all get out in business because something's always blocking our path. And then the third one has to do with where they're trying to go. I call it strategic. So they're blocked and you're going to help them. You don't know which one's going to resonate, but they're going to learn that these things even exist and that there's hope. You know, there's no hope in sales done right, but you sell hope in order to encourage somebody to come along with you so that they can see the potential of availing themselves of your sincere expertise. So now what do I have to do? Well, let's say I got to learn to sell a meeting. Okay. So now there's two choices. Either my new sales rep invents the technique for selling the world's oldest product, a meeting, which means I think that they're a genius in something like linguistic psychology with a business thingy thrown in. 
I don't think that's true. So I think we're going to have to actually invent the means. And the core means is a message. And the message needs to be realistic. So what is realistic? Well, they're going to ambush people. So if you're going to ambush people, you realistically, you need to deal with what's the psychology of somebody who's been ambushed from their perspective. How can you help them go from the feeling of being ambushed, being afraid of you, to the feeling of trusting you? Can you do that? It's an interesting question. It turns out the answer is yes. What percentage of the time? It turns out the answer is 100%. Wow, now we have something we can teach our brand new SDR that they will be able to use for the rest of their life. I call that first cold call finishing school for future CEOs. Okay, tell us more about that. Well, what do you do as a CEO? What's your main trick? As a CEO, everybody in the COO world has got tricks around knowing how to say, you know, it's going to cost this much to do this with this much risk. And within the strategy of of the company, that this is better than this. So let's do this. And to do this, we need to do this, 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 and this in something like this sequence. And our investment is going to be risk adjusted like this. Therefore, and then you go to the CFO, therefore, we need this much money at these kind of times from these sorts of sources. And, you know, you come all the way. Well, what's the CEO's job? The number one job of a CEO is to talk to strangers. Mm-hmm. That is the job. If you want to be a CEO, your number one skill you need to develop is the skill of talking to strangers when you aren't specifically prepared for that conversation. You know, if you can only talk to strangers when you're prepared for the conversation specifically, we call you Mr. Monkey. And Mr. Monkey works like this. You know, those little toy monkeys that go bang, 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 bang. bang. That's Mr. Monkey, right? And Mr. Monkey has a place in business, you know? They have a department that gives them a kind of a script to read. And, you know, they look real sincere and they tell a bunch of lies. Some things are the truth, but those are accidents. And the lies are what move the business forward. So that's Mr. Monkey. But if you're really going to be a CEO, your job is to talk to strangers. And there's various categories. Somebody who's thinking of becoming an employee or to join your team. They're a stranger when you meet them. Can you talk to them? Do you need to prep on like their dog's name or their, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever? Not if you're a real CEO and you really know what you're doing. You can talk to that stranger. Can you talk to a stranger who's thinking of making a huge bet by investing money in your company? Can you talk to a stranger who's wondering, should we do business with you or the other guy? Because it all seems kind of even to me right now, Yeah. right? Can you talk to a stranger when it comes time to acquire their company or to sell your company to their company? Can you have that comment? Talking to strangers is the core skill of a CEO. You want to learn it? Learn to cold call. Talk to strangers all day. In fact, screw cold calling. Have cold conversations. Have 40 or 50 of them every day. Do it for about six months. Get coached on it. Be the best in the world. Your career is fundamentally assured. You cannot fail from that position unless you choose to. Now, you know, you could become like, I don't know what, you know, a drunk, drug addict, you know, crazy person. But if you don't go all those directions, you actually, that's why I call it finishing school. You've been to school. You've learned a bunch of stuff. Maybe you even kind of know some business. That's not what does it. People don't follow you for that reason. The job of a CEO is to be followed by people yep. to a yep. good place. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's it. Absolutely. Which, which leads us to, I want to talk about um, 
connect and sell the 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 organization that you're now ceo of and it's a it's a phenomenal concept and i'm still trying to get my head around it in terms of some of the numbers you've been talking about can you give the listeners a bit of a bit of a rundown in terms of what 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 was the problem in the marketplace that you identified that you now are solving with connect and sell because it's a it's a phenomenal idea well, I didn't identify it. It was served up to me on a platter. I got lucky. <laughs> well, you were in the right place at the right time, Chris. I sure was. I had a former employee call me up and say, you got to look at my company, Connect and Sell. So I look at the website. This is in 2011. And I said, uh, you know, do you know what the phrase wholly uninterested means? Wholly uninterested. <laughs> That's what I, that was my impression of Connect and Sell. Wholly uninterested. I'm wholly hey, uninterested. I was about, I was about to come down here where I am right now in Southern Arizona, Tucson, actually, where I went to school, one of the various schools in my many, many years of trying to finally get a university degree. And uh, I was going to come down here and run a very, very uh, tech exotic solar energy company. I'm a physicist. Yeah. I love Arizona. I love, I love the sun. What the heck? Why not? You know, see if I can help a 80 plus year old guy turn his wife's dream into something that changes the world. And then I was called by this guy. Well, I went and I met Sean McLaren, the CEO of Connect and Sell, because basically this guy who called me, his name's Kenny, he just said, you got to meet Sean. And I knew of Sean. I hadn't met him, but I knew of him. So I went and met him for breakfast the next morning, 6.30. And he told me what Connect and Sell was doing. And I said, hold on, hang on. You're telling me you've reinvented the business telephone. So it calls more than one person at a time, but does it as though it's people that's like you doing it. Hmm. And um, the mathematical consequence is a 10 times increase in the flow rate of the only thing that creates value in businesses de novo, which is a conversation between somebody who might have a problem and somebody who might have a solution to that problem. So you have a 10 X of that. And he said, deadpan, yes. And <laughs> yeah, and and I said, and, and and I said it's quite stupidly. I said, and I didn't know about it. He said, I'm not responsible for what you know about or don't know about. I said, good, good point, fair. Um, so I asked him like three more questions, and then I said, I'm in. And he said, What do you mean you're in? And I said, I'm in. I'm working for you now. Hmm. And he says, uh, What if I'm not hiring? And I said, Well, uh, it's America. That's where we are, right here at San Mateo part of America. It's a free country. I can work for whomever I want. He said, Call HR and, and see how little I can pay you. <laughs> <laughs> and I guarantee you of all the things we don't have at Connect and Sell, we don't have much HR. So I joined up on the spot. Now, why? who came up with it? It was come up with around a table in India, a, a, a guy who's a, not an Indian guy, an American guy with an interesting background, very smart guy wanted to call back to the States and he just, uh, he had a bunch of people he wanted to talk to all equivalent, right? It's like when you're raising money or you're doing anything, any list. Yeah. And he just cut the list up into, I think it was six or eight or something, sub lists, taped them to the table, put a telephone next to him, got somebody to take that telephone and hold their finger next to who they were calling, but not talk to the person if they got them. Do everything, but don't talk to them. Just hold the phone up. I'll take it and look and say, you know, Hi, Darren. Right. So that's how it was invented. It was a brute force technique mathematically to solve a simple problem. Here's the problem. 
in the early 2000s, voicemail became ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. And it became ubiquitous because first the technology is there and then computer storage became very cheap. So you could store lots and lots of voicemails, including those from people calling from outside your company. Because voicemail systems used to be, they used to be locked off. You couldn't just call some company and leave a voicemail. That was a ridiculous concept in 1996. But by 2002, you could everywhere. And by 2005, you combine that with caller ID. And now this poor salesperson is doomed. And they're doomed because they've gone from being able to talk to somebody once in every four calls or five calls to talking to somebody every 12 or 15. Now it's every 24. Yeah. So your calls are going to voicemail. And voicemail became a dead letter box because then people just stopped listening to it because most of it was spam from salespeople. Yep. So yep. the problem was a problem born as so many problems are of technological success. Something got easy and therefore something got hard. And the thing that got hard was having live human conversations. Yep. So the connect and sell solution is, I, I hate to say it, literally nothing more than taking those people around the table and this is going to sound terrible. And I don't, if anybody who's a connect and sell agent, don't listen to this this way. I don't mean it like this. I'm speaking as a mathematician now, yeah. putting them inside the box, inside the system and having the system manage all of this brilliant human resource, which is capable of navigating phone calls, talking to gatekeepers and hanging up on voicemail. Ah, what a joy. So instead of you doing this as the salesperson, and having a one in 24 shot of success, you push a button and you have a 100% chance of success. You're always going to talk to a target, always talk to somebody you want to talk to. That's all it is. What's interesting to me is what it lets you discover, which is the opportunity to pave markets with trust. Connect and sell is fundamentally a means to amplify suck. Most sales reps being self-centered suck. They're getting the person on the phone and they're sucking. They just are. What can I say? They got fucking suck. That's what we do. Steve Richard asked me once before he went on stage at a big conference, and I have a rule don't ever follow Steve Richard. He's so good. Don't go on stage after Steve Richard. So we're sitting at breakfast one day at the Serious Decisions Conference in Nashville, and he's about to go on stage, and he's just kind of, we're just vamping this, having fun. And he says, Chris, what do you guys really do at Connected Sell? I said, Steve, we amplify suck. <laughs> and he just started laughing. And I said, I'm deadly serious. So, so does everything else. All the sales tech, we just happen to do it 10 times more. You know, we do it like now. We amplify yeah. suck on the spot. Push the button, have a bad conversation. You know, knock yourself out, right? Yeah. So what we realized is, and, and this is the beauty of Connect and Sell, if you do something enough, you start to see what works and what doesn't work. So while there are wonderful companies in the conversation analytics space, like, you know, there's, um, I don't know, there's Gong and there's Chorus and there's Refract, a wonderful company, a great company is that space. The grist for the mill comes in in very small trucks. Whereas we got them big 18 wheelers backing up and going, yeah, you want, you you want 3 million conversations to analyze? I got them right here. And we specialize naturally in first conversations and then follow-ups with people who haven't accepted a meeting. There's some others too. So you think about those as specialty conversations and are they important? It turns out they're the bottleneck of every business. 
They're the bottleneck of every business. I don't care. B2B, tell me all you want. You know, Eli Goldratt told us only pay attention to the bottleneck. The bottleneck is creating new trust relationships that eventually will mature and ripen and harvest, you know, you'll harvest them, right? So what it opens up is so interesting to me because it's an opportunity to identify a market, turn it into a list, which you really know you have a market as Jeff Moore has taught us all without a list, yeah. Yeah. no market. Yeah. Talk to everybody on the list who answers the phone, which turns out to be 40 to 50% of the list. Do it in one tenth the time of your competitor and do it even before you have a product. Just do it with a script. I can help you make the script. It takes me 10 minutes. It yeah. takes an hour because I have to convince you that the script is psychologically sound because you won't believe me from saying this right now. But you, trust me, your part's going to be you know five minutes or 10 minutes. And get good at, a, at sincerely for, for the right reasons, emitting the script and handling the obvious objections to a cold call, which everybody gets mm. wrong. Like, tell me more. What do you say to tell me more? Here's the right answer. Here's the wrong answer. Blah, 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 more. Right? Here's the right answer. You know, we've learned the hard way that an ambush conversation like this isn't a fair setting for talking about something this important. I'm a morning person. How's your Thursday? I'll shoot you something. We'll move it around yeah. if we have to. Yeah. That's yeah. the right thing to say. Do you have the balls to say it? I don't know. Some people do. Some we don't. So that's what's interesting to me about connecting cells. Simple impossible to build. Anybody wants to go build one? Feel free, knock yourself out. After you spend about 2 million, I'll have my patent attorney send you a letter and uh, we'll have a chat after you've spent the money. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> like, or I'm a nice guy. I ain't that nice. And uh, it's, so it's really hard to build because how do you get hundreds and hundreds of people to be perfect at navigating phone calls every day? Mm. Yeah. How do you do that at pace and scale handling all that variety? There are 29 different ways through a phone call just to navigate it, hard stuff. What well, we've been at it 15 years. So I didn't come up with it. I saw it. I feel pretty good that I joined. I underestimated the power because I didn't get this bit about paving markets with trust until I was about six years, five years in. And then it, it struck me, oh, wait a second. A hundred percent of cold calls done right succeed in seven seconds to change the market in your favor forever. You think about that, all the venture capital in the world can't do that. No. And that that is a game changer. Utterly, utterly. Absolutely. Everybody should be afraid of every company using Connect and Sell. I know one that went from 200 million of transacted enterprise value to a billion dollars of transacted enterprise value in two and a half years. And you know what they did? They called a bunch of truckers. Yeah, thank you. That's it. Wow. They just talked to a bunch of people. Yeah. Made $800 million for their investor who, who owned yeah. it. And that's not imaginary money. That's not valuation money. That's transacted value, enterprise value. That's somebody paid coming in, and they yeah. paid going out. And they're worth a lot more now because I can tell you, they, they talk to a lot more people now than they did back then. Amazing. Amazing. So, um, so Chris, if people want to listen, uh, or learn a little bit more about, uh, obviously, hopefully they'll be listening to this podcast as well and watching us mm. on the uh, on the fabulous Zoom. But uh, if people want to find out a little bit more about Connect and Sell, learn a bit about how they get involved, but also uh, connect with yourself, which is which is the best avenues to do so. 
You know, I think LinkedIn is good for connecting with me because it's not very noisy. So I get 20, 30 connection requests a day. I get 1,300 emails. So make your choice. Chris.Beal at Connection Cell works too, but I'm likely to miss you in the noise. Um, I pay more attention to LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is pretty fabulous. Actually, a social network that's not full of vitriol. I kind of think it's pretty cool. It's the only one, by the way. All the other social networks are kind of full of lies and vitriol, but LinkedIn, they figured it out. So that's one. Um, If you want to learn about this crazy idea of market dominance by going with a conversation first approach and paving the market with trust, my podcast, which is an accident itself, it's called Market Dominance Guys. It's just market an attempt to write a book. Guys. Market Dominance Guys. You know, the car guys that were, I don't know if you know, but anybody who's old enough might remember that on National Public Radio, there was the par- the car guys. They were two MIT trained em- engineers who talked about how to fix your car. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so we, we riffed on that. And it's just Corey Frank and me and now some guests talking in some detail at 122 episodes we are at some detail about how practically to dominate a market step-by-step. Step. It's a cookbook in 122 episodes yeah, no, and it's yeah. still going on. So yeah, check out Market Dominance, guys. And um, I've had some people get pretty excited and do some odd things as a result of listening to it. One guy binge listened to it for four days and kind of re-engineered his company. He's the smartest guy I've ever met in business. And now, you know, then reached out to me and now runs a company based on these principles and has become a fantastic partner of ours at Connect Cell. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, let's face it, the techniques that are being sold now to approach markets, if you think about them carefully, you realize they can't possibly work. You can't send enough emails to dominate a market. You can't spend enough on search advertising for serious B2B to dominate a market because buyers will not buy from you until they trust you more than they trust themselves. And they're not going to trust you more than they trust themselves because you deceive them with the subject line. Absolutely. That ain't going to happen. So you don't have as many avenues as you think, but one of them is wide open and that's what market dominance guys is about. So that's what I would recommend is, you know, even before anybody reaches out to me, take a listen, listen to this episode. Don't make the spiders angry. So it's the episode <laughs> that I think is, is, is the one the that, angry. yeah, it's about selling the meeting. It's about why you need to recognize there is a universal product in B2B. It's called the discovery call. And you yeah. need to learn how to sell it in order to dominate markets. Absolutely. Phenomenal, uh, phenomenal way to end this great conversation, Chris. Greatly appreciate all the way from Arizona jumping on the podcast. It's been a fabulous conversation. And uh, I'll make sure that all of the, uh, the details around the podcast, LinkedIn, also, um, can I send them also potentially to Connect and Sell website if they want to find out more information about that? Yeah, you know, it's a pack of lies, but whatever. Here's the problem with Connect and Sell. You go to the website, like I did. Remember, I went to the website. Yeah, yeah. And you conclude it's a dialer. No matter what we say. By the way, the website says this is not a dialer. And therefore, you're going to think it's a dollar. So the only way to really learn about Connect and Sell properly is to do a test drive in the website. There's a little form in which you say, hey, 
can I do a test drive? And the test drive is a full day of production. It is a lottery ticket also. Uh, Tony Safoyan who's the CEO of SADA, Google Cloud's number one partner. And his podcast where I was a guest on episode 54, minute 21, I asked him, didn't you guys make a little like money on your connect and sell test drive? And he laughed and his, uh, his VP, Billy Franz says, I, I said like a million dollars. And he laughed and he said, tens of millions. Wow. And it was three hours long. Yeah. So yeah. it's a lottery ticket, but that's not the point. The point is, this is kind of like, I, I once had the opportunity to get in a Ferrari 455 with an instructor, thank God, and go out on a Formula One course, a simulated Formula One course. I was terrible. I thought I was a good driver. I was terrible, right? But I learned a lot in those seven laps. And the first lap is the test drive. And you, it's really enlightening to suddenly have your eyes open to this. Oh, my God, we can talk to our entire market. Wow. Which is, uh, which is a phenomenal concept. It's not bad. <laughs> and I, and I, love, I love the catchphrase used before, we amplify suck. <laughs> yeah, I tell you what. The, the guy who, who did the binge list thing, he, he ran into that in a, um, in a blog post. And he said, anybody who says they amplify suck, I got I to gotta look deeper. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, it's, that's what authenticity is all about, right? So you're then solving a problem and, and <laughs> you're doing it faster. Yeah. 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 And, and you might be the problem at that point. Absolutely. So, Chris, hey, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you once again for jumping on the podcast. And uh, we're going to have to probably do a follow-up at some stage. Darren, I think we're going to talk again. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. We'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. I trust the information in this episode has been helpful in your journey towards becoming exceptional. And remember, please take the time to rate the show, subscribe to the show so other people can find it. But also, if I can help you, jump on my calendar, go to leadwithdarren.com and let's have a conversation about how I can help you along your journey to being exceptional.